Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi from the OIS Podcast. We have a great podcast for you today. Jeff Marazzo, the CEO and co-founder of Spark Therapeutics, joined us to discuss the company's uh, very successful phase three clinical trials of its SPK RPE65 gene therapy. Uh, it's intended to treat rare blinding conditions caused by mutations in the RPE65 gene and is linked to subtypes of Lieber congenital amaurosis and retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, the, the company's uh, successful clinical trials will uh, lead to it, its plans to file for a BLA. So it's a great win for gene therapy. This company is blazing trails, uh, not only in ophthalmology, but in all drug discovery. And Wall Street has uh, certainly rewarded the stock this week. So Jeff joined us to talk uh, about the clinical trials, to talk about how the company will go forward with commercialization and gave us some insights uh, on the very interesting origins of Spark. It actually uh, came out of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So enjoy this podcast. Uh, very excited to bring this one to you. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the OIS podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to, looking forward to talking. Now you've got a lot to talk about. You've uh, delivered some uh, some great news. It was a nice way to start the week, a real positive uh, punch on the clinical trial side. Had some uh, positive phase three results, results rather, for SPK RPE65. What were the results? And can you talk a bit about the trial, uh, the number of patients, the design, and, and uh, just give us a, a rundown of where you are? Yeah, so, so earlier this week, we announced uh, positive top-line results uh, for our phase three pivotal trial of SBKRP65, which is for uh, a form, various forms of genetic uh, blindness um, caused by a, a gene, uh, mutations in a gene called RP65. That's the, the name for, for the product candidate. Uh, what we reported out earlier this week was that we met the uh, primary endpoint and the first two of three secondary endpoints, and we did so with uh, high statistical significance. Uh, in fact, the primary endpoint hit with a p-value of 0 0.001, uh, and the first secondary hit with a p-value of less than 0 0.001, and the second secondary hit with a p-value of also 0 0.001. So highly statistical significant, um, and I think that's uh, particularly notable given uh, the fact that this, this was a rare disease, so we conducted the trial um, with uh, 31 subjects. Uh, they were randomized two to one, uh, two-thirds of the subjects um, or 21 subjects uh, received um, uh, were randomized uh, to an intervention arm, um, and 20 of those 21 uh, were exposed or received SBKRP65. And the other arm, the control arm, uh, 10 subjects were waited waited a year, received the same evaluations that those in the intervention arm, and then after one year they had the ability to cross over. Uh, all nine of the subjects uh, that were followed during that year. Uh, crossed over and subsequently received uh, uh, SBK RP65, uh, but the analysis and what we reported out this week was on uh, the one-year endpoint comparing the intervention group uh, to the control group on a mobility test as well as on uh, testing of, of retinal sensitivity. That's terrific. And this uh, uh, gene therapy has had a bumpy road this year with clinical trials. What what impact what do you think these results will have on 
the field. It's hard, obviously, to project the results from one trial over a whole field, but it's, it is nice to get some positive news for the sector. Well, I mean, what is notable is that this was, as far as we're aware, this was the first uh, randomized controlled trial in gene therapy for a genetic disease um, and uh, was certainly the first one that, that had positive uh, top-line results. So that's a big accomplishment. Certainly the field has, uh, has gone through its ups and downs, um, and to have uh, positive top-line results that are uh, as statistically significant as we saw um, we think is a, is a major step forward for the field and for Spark. I will also add, just as importantly, we were uh, really pleased with the safety data that we generated in this trial. We didn't see, uh, we saw uh, no serious adverse events from SPK RP65. We didn't see any deleterious immune responses. Uh, and we, we also, the adverse events that we did see were consistent um, with uh, adverse events that we saw in the earlier trials that were attributed uh, to the procedure, not to the product candidate. So um, all in all, from a safety and efficacy perspective, uh, a real step forward, uh, really to some extent a, a moment that uh, I think the field has all been waiting for. And I think from our perspective as a company, I think it, it demonstrates the attention to detail that we put into uh, developing these types of product candidates for gene therapy, focusing on all the little details from uh, how we design the vectors, how we manufacture them, the formulation, uh, the development of a novel endpoint and validation of a novel endpoint. Um, all of those aspects together contributed to the success, and I think it speaks. Uh, I'm certainly very proud of, of the team uh, that we have here at Spark who paid attention to all those details across a series of disciplines, and I think it sets us up well as we start to talk about the rest of our pipeline and introduce more of that pipeline certainly both in the area of inherited retinal dystrophies in the eye, but also even outside that, the work we're doing in hematologic disorders and hemophilia and in neurodegenerative conditions as well. So we think it sets, uh, sets us up in a, in a great position to not only bring this program, uh, which we intend to do, tend to file next year for biologic licensing application uh, in the U.S. in 2016, but it sets us up uh, equally nicely for the other programs we're working on behind it. Jeff, what were your interactions with the FDA in putting together this trial? Was it any different than in other companies? Well, I think it's, it's different than other, uh, many other companies in biopharma, just really a, which is a function of this stage of gene therapy. We, we ended up, and the FDA, to their credit, uh, took an unusual step of calling an advisory committee meeting before we started our Phase three trial, and they did that to gather a number of experts in the field of, of inherited retinal dystrophies together to really discuss what are the right endpoints for these types of diseases. I think it's really important to remember that in addition to this potentially being the first approved gene therapy in the United States for genetic disease, equally as importantly, it is potentially the first uh, approved pharmacologic treatment for any inherited retinal dystrophy. So the FDA was seeking uh, advice and counsel uh, through this advisory committee meeting um, from outside individuals, and we were interested in that, that uh, thought process as well about what were the uh, the viable endpoints uh, for this disease. And we can talk more about it, but what we heard uh, throughout that dialogue and what we've seen throughout this development program is that uh, nyctalopia or night blindness was really one of the hallmarks of this disorder and that the FDA and we were interested in looking at uh, something that could measure uh, clinical meaningfulness in that population. And so we developed this mobility test, which I can talk in more detail, but we've subsequently validated, which measures the ability uh, of someone's functional vision, measures someone's functional vision and their ability to navigate under different lighting conditions, which really gets at 
the the uh, as I said, part of the pathophysiology of this disease. And then we also, secondly, as the first secondary endpoint in our trial, uh, measured full field light sensitivity threshold testing, which is a measurement of light sensitivity across your field. And that uh, is a nice uh, demonstration of um, uh, of the uh, uh, of, of again the physiology being engaged in the context of, of this uh, of this product candidate. And we saw, uh, which was again why we were so pleased about these results. We saw uh, that those two endpoints really supported each other in, in the context of uh, the statistical significance. Was that advisory board, uh, that committees, were their findings binding, uh, you know, when they came up with the endpoints, or did you sort of have some say in what the, the final endpoints would be? Yeah, they, they weren't necessarily binding. It was, uh, it was in June, June of 2011. Uh, we listened, uh, participated in and listened to uh, all, all the commentary, uh, went back, put all of our thoughts together about what we heard and what we thought made sense, we then came back to them with a proposed uh, phase three protocol. They actually asked us to uh, to hold off before we started, uh, reviewed it, and, and didn't just review it with individuals in the direct office that oversees uh, gene therapies. They actually took it to a number of different offices and divisions throughout the FDA and got feedback from a number of parties um, uh, that that have expertise and knowledge in ophthalmology. Um, from across uh, the FDA and then came back to us with their feedback. And with that feedback, uh, we then incorporated uh, a couple of things and then got started. And then subsequently, uh, we received breakthrough therapy designation for uh, SBKRP65 and, and have used that to continue to have an active dialogue with the FDA on a number of aspects of the development program. Excellent. And, and talk a bit about the, the mobility uh, part of the study you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So. We had used a, this, uh, this assay in the earlier phase one trials, specifically the second phase one trial. Um, and what the test, in essence, tries to capture is a number of aspects of the vision um, and specifically tries to get at uh, uh, really, really right at the heart of, of visually dependent uh, activities of daily living, like, for example, sort of stepping up onto a sidewalk or walking around an obstacle or identifying something it might be in your home, um, and make, you know, the, having the ability to navigate around it, and uh, so that this course is basically set up in the ophthalmology suite that look that has a number of obstacles and turns. There's actually 12 different courses. They're randomly presented to subjects so that they can't, um, you know, can't remember them, um, and then we test the subject's ability to navigate the course successfully, which is measured by you know, uh, the number of obstacles that they they don't hit, essentially for accuracy, if you will, and we also measure it for speed, um, and that gives them an ultimate uh, pass/fail. And we measure them at various lighting conditions, from the brightest light being uh, the uh, bright or uh, brightly lit office, all the way down to uh, one lux, which is the night the, uh, the the darkness of a moonless summer night, or you're walking around your, your hallway in the middle of the night with just a nightlight on. Uh, and so we measure them at seven different levels across seven different lighting conditions across that scale. And at baseline, before, uh, before they're receiving the, the SBK RP65 product, we see where they are able to function at. And then we, look, we looked a number of end, uh, time points later, but the measurement was when we looked one year later, where were they able to now function at? Um, and what we saw, actually, we, we shared this earlier this week in addition to some of the other data, 
we saw that approximately two-thirds of the subjects in the intervention arm could actually perform, no matter where they started at beforehand, could actually improve to the maximal point on the asset, going all the way down to one lux. So two out of every three people approximately in the study could basically now perform in what is you know, nearly the darkest condition, which, going back to this hallmark of this disease being night blindness, we really are opening up uh, potentially a number of uh, visually dependent activities of daily living you know, that previously those subjects weren't able to do uh, with, with the same amount of independence. We're going to take a quick break from this conversation, this great story in ophthalmology and drug development. To remind you uh, to go to uh, OIS.net to register for the upcoming OIS at AAO conference. Uh, We've got a number of new features, including uh, one that Spark will be part of, our public company showcase. Uh, Features presentations from publicly traded leaders like Spark. And we'll also have an excellent uh, panel discussion led by co-chair Emmett Cunningham about uh, uh, where ophthalmology fits into uh, into Wall Street. It'll be a panel of analysts who will be uh, bringing their insights on the field. So this isn't something you want to miss. Go to ois.net to register. Now let's hop back into this conversation with Jeff Morazzo of Spark. H- how big of a population are we talking about? And, and uh, what sort of durability data did you see in the study? So we estimate based on uh, existing epidemiology research, we estimate that there's about 3,500 uh, people in the United States in the five largest European markets uh, with, vari- with, uh, with mutations in RPE65. Um, we are in the process of, of doing a fair amount of, of market research and work on the ground in a number of markets outside of those six markets, including in uh, South America um, as well as in, in Pan-Asia, and so we're going to continue to provide you know, more visibility over time on, on what those opportunities look like in other markets, as well as, I should say, outside of the five European markets and other European mar- mar- uh, markets and countries. So we think the opportunity is, is larger than the 3,500 as we think about a global opportunity here, which is what we're, we're planning for and are investing towards. Um, and in terms of your question about durability, we have really two data sets that we think are particularly useful. Obviously, the phase three trial, uh, we measured it at one year time point. Uh, But in two of our earlier phase one trials, um, in the second of those trials, the subjects who received SBKRP65 got the high dose and the high volume, which was the volume that we used in the phase three study. And the eight subjects that were in that trial that would have qualified for phase three, we now have those uh, patients are now have been followed out uh, anywhere from three to four years. And the effect that we see, that we saw within the first year, whether you measure it through mobility testing or full field light sensitivity threshold testing, whether you measure these two measurements, you see that whatever effect that they got within one year is stable out at, uh, at those marks, whether it's three years or four years, depending upon the subject's last follow-up. So, you know, that's a really good start, we think. And then when you, when you uh, tie that together with, uh, the subjects that participated in the first of our phase one studies, who admittedly were a part of a dose escalation study where we were using various endpoints at the time. Nonetheless, those subjects are also coming back in every year, and uh, they report through our clinical team that, that they are seeing a durable effect. Now, that's, uh, we have less data on that, but the data, I think, in the uh, second phase one study and then the experience that we're hearing reported through the clinical teams in the first phase one study 
you know, really provide uh, really provide a nice uh, beginning picture for durability uh, for us to to uh, move forward with. And can you talk a bit about your vector and uh, and what are the diseases uh, it allows you to target? I know you've got some other retinal products in your pipeline. Are they using the same technology or, or something different? And what are you looking at outside of ophthalmology? Yeah, so we're the the vector technology that we use is something called adeno associated virus or AAV vectors, um, and uh, it it has the potential to uh, to be used in a number of cells. Uh, that don't divide a lot. So cells like those in the back of your eye and the retina, cells like those in your liver, um, as well as cells in your central nervous system. So we've actually focused on, as a company on three different areas to begin with, with the retina being one of them, uh, hematologic disorders, uh, specifically hemophilia being a second area, and the third area being uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, and so the vector technology that we're using, which you know incorporates everything from the way we design it, the way we manufacture it, um, that that is all uh, used across those three areas. Um, and so we have programs in each of those three areas. And what we've done in each of those three is to have a lead program and then candidates that follow them. And the concept is that as we work out and solve uh, whatever challenges may be in front of us in that that uh, therapeutic area or in that target tissue, once we start to do do that and solve those, um, as we've now uh, demonstrated in the context of, of the eye and the retina, you know, it opens up the ability to go after other diseases and to leverage a lot of our experience from the first program with the second program. And moving forward toward filing for the BLA, what are the, the challenges that are unique uh, in, in filing for a BLA? I know there uh, it's often been talked about. It was a an issue of contention in the negotiation of ACA as to the 12-year exclusivity period that you have with the BLA. As a company going forward, what are the challenges unique to filing for a BLA from the FDA? It's a lot of letters. Well, I think, for, I mean, in this context, I think for us, uh, because we're, we may be uh, the first BLA uh, that the FDA may be taking up and, and considering for approval um, in the United States, for gene therapy, uh, for genetic disease, we're going to be ultimately blazing uh, some new ground in the context of establishing um, uh, establishing precedents and, and things like specifications around manufacturing, um, considerations around the, the module that you put forth around your preclinical testing. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of things that we're going to be uh, establishing the, the standards on, which we see as actually a real advantage for the company because the more we set those standards at a bar that we believe we're uniquely capable um, uh, to to uh, to meet, um, it gives us a real competitive advantage. Uh, so that's we you know separate from that, and in the context of things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and ACA, I'm you know I, admittedly I'm I'm not up to speed on all the specific details and and how they're being negotiated in the current status of all of them. I will say at a high level that the ability for us to uh, be first to market for uh, patients with RP65 mediated diseases and bring a solution that may be a potential one-time treatment, um, uh, you know, it doesn't, it, it really is a different dynamic than uh, going into a marketplace with a, a therapy that you have to take on a chronic basis because, you know, you can be a second or third mover theoretically into uh, those markets where you, where it's a chronic therapy, where you're going into a market 
as a second or third player where someone else has come in and treated a large portion, if not all, the prevalent population with a potentially one-time treatment. It's a very different competitive dynamic. You can see how that becomes um, a real uh, advantage for us um, as we get out to the market, uh, you know, certainly sooner than, uh, than, it, than anyone else uh, has the potential to do so. Yeah, it's almost a, a device, uh, a med tech sort of sales. So how, how do you, uh, what, what will your commercial strategy be in moving forward? Have you figured out whether you'll be selling it yourself or are you looking to partner? What's your plan? Yeah, we, we've determined that um, at least uh, for the foreseeable future, the way we think about it is we've been able to build uh, a leadership team in the commercial and medical and patient advocacy uh, arena already within their organization you know, we have many, uh, many of, of leaders in the rare disease um, and orphan product space coming from places like Genzyme and, and Shire um, that we've been able to recruit. And, and our goal is to bring this to the market globally uh, with, with internal resources. Um, and as I said, we've already begun the process of, uh, of working with, uh, you know, potential centers of excellence that will, uh, you know, that would, would provide this product and, uh, you know, to, to patients if it's approved. Um, and, uh, and then we'll be uh, moving forward looking not only at, you know, in the U.S. and the European markets, but as I said earlier, we're going to be looking more broadly than that with, uh, with the internal resources that we've brought on. And finally, it must be first. It must be very exciting to be the first. You're right, to create the criteria and, and to sort of set the standard that everyone else has to follow. Um, what are the origins, though, of the company? Because you've got a unique history as well. I know that the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is, is an investor. Uh, how did the company come about, and, and how did that relationship with Children's Hospital, as they're being an investor in the company, how did that come together? Yes, so the way this actually all started is back, actually a little bit less than five years ago, um, I had the occasion to... Uh, to spend a little bit of time with the CEO of CHOP, and the CEO of CHOP was interested in, uh, the then CEO of CHOP was interested in identifying potential ways uh, to diversify revenue sources and think differently about how to commercialize research that was going on within the walls of, of the hospital. Um, and so, you know, he and I agreed that I would spend a little bit of time uh, sort of roaming the halls, if you will, and, and meeting with various uh, scientists and researchers and clinicians that were, were doing some really interesting work. And along my travels, I met a woman named Kathy High, uh, who was running the what was effectively the gene therapy center at CHOP, um, and she had uh, some interesting data around RP65 mediated diseases, and she also had some interesting work going on in hemophilia, and in some neurodegenerative diseases, and as well as a uh, had built a really uh, uh, excellent group that had the ability to manufacture these types of viral vectors, and so uh, we started to talk about the potential to uh, create a company based on that technology as opposed to uh, out-licensing the IP or the program to a particular existing biopharma company. Um, and then as we got into those discussions, you know, my view was that CHOP had made a tremendous uh, commitment and contribution to the field of gene therapy about a decade ago when the field was, uh, was had fallen on harder times. You know, CHOP had basically stood up and doubled down and invested uh, their resources in advancing the work of Kathy and her colleagues, and that they deserve to have, uh, you know, the, the proper uh, return on on that contribution that they had made uh, to the field. And I felt that the way that was that they were best set up to do so was to be, uh, you know, a co-founder and a founding partner in creating the company, as well as have the opportunity to be a sole uh, investor or an investor along the way. Um, 
And we were able to do that, having them as the sole investor in our first financing round, participating substantially in our second round, and even participating in our IPO. Um, and uh, you know, and obviously the the way things have worked out, it's it's um, it's worked out to a point where you know Chop is in a is in a uh, great position, a position that frankly they deserved all along to be in. Um, from uh, from my perspective, is that a model you think that can be replicated? Is this something that other hospitals uh, might might consider I, doing? I think it's possible. I think it you know there's really a confluence of factors that made this this uh, this potentially uh, doable. I mean, you know, we looked at other projects. I looked at other projects along the way uh, there, and those uh, those didn't have the same you know uh, you know same same sort of unique attributes to make it achievable. So it it, it is situation dependent. But I do think if you think about um, any hospital or, or frankly, any uh, organization with a large endowment, you know, what you have to understand is that that, that large endowment does invest typically single-digit percentages of that endowment into alternative investments. Most of those alternative investments, or some of them, are private uh, equity investments. Uh, in the case of CHOP, they they had an investment. They were an investor in a number of venture capital firms, albeit as a limited partner. So if you think about it, take a step back. They were exposed to that uh, type of risk and reward that any you know that a venture uh, investment exposes you to. Um, and my pitch to them was, you know, this is a unique opportunity. Expose yourself to it directly uh, because you have unique insight and information about this potential opportunity. And you know, if you do that, you'll have uh, you know you'll have the potential to to benefit from that substantially. So, um, you know, we it, there. I think it is possible to replicate, and I think it's a it's a unique model. It does take a unique you know leader uh, like Steve Altshuler, who was who was the CEO of Chop, um, and it takes a number of other uh, factors that have to come together. But uh, but I think it's it's you know under the right conditions and the right situation, I think it's possible to to replicate it. This is a great story from from start to uh, I didn't want to say finish, but from start to now, and really happy to have it within the uh, ophthalmology field. And and you're going to be telling your story at OIS in in Las Vegas, correct? Yeah, I'm looking really looking forward to that. We've uh, obviously this has been a you know exciting opportunity this week to tell people about the top line results. We're going to share some additional data um, about the trial this weekend at another uh, ophthalmology meeting. Um, and then uh, we're looking forward next month to sharing some additional data around the next ophthalmology meeting, um, including at, uh, at your meeting at, at OIS, and uh, we're looking forward to all those opportunities. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to see you there. I thank you for the time. I know you've got a busy week, and congratulations on, on such great news. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Jeff Morazzo, for joining us on the OIS podcast for juggling your uh, busy schedule of what's really been a historic week uh, for gene therapy. So great to have uh, these insights uh, presented to our OIS community. For those who want to hear more, Jeff will be at OIS at AAO on November 12th in Las Vegas. You should be there too. Go to ois.net and register to attend. Uh, Jeff in Spark will be part of our new public company showcase. Uh, We'll have uh, presentations by these leaders in ophthalmology, as well as a great panel discussion involving the analysts covering the sector. So again, go to ois.net to sign up, and we'll see you in Las Vegas.